Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Welcome to our Yom Kippur Day services. Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. It's a fast day. More importantly, it's a day of atonement, the day of atonement, which is ultimately fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah, our Yom Kippur scapegoat, as we read in the scripture reading, uh, our once and for all final sin offering, Korban HaKata'at, and our guilt offering, Korban Hasham. Uh, it's the day when we confess our sins and we repent, uh, meaning we turn from them and we ask the Lord for forgiveness. It's the day when we also ask for forgiveness from one another. We ask others whom we've wronged or offended over this past year to forgive us. And we extend forgiveness to anyone who has wronged or offended us. And so today, I'd like us to talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness encapsulates a key aspect of our relationship to the Lord uh, and our relationship to one another as fellow believers. I want to start with Ephesians 4.23. I'm putting on the overhead as well. Ephesians 4.23. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as, just as in Messiah, God forgave you. And I want us to focus on our motivation for forgiveness. And after over 23 years as a Messianic rabbi, I could tell you that one of the primary causes of people being derailed in their faith is due to the sin of unforgiveness. I've seen people walk out of their marriages and abandon their families due to unforgiveness uh, and a root of bitterness that it causes and the foothold and the open door uh, that unforgiveness gives to the enemy. Young people leave home, go down horrific roads due to unforgiveness. Friendships are destroyed. Congregations are split due to unforgiveness. And people walk away from the Lord and abandon their faith due to unforgiveness. And so do you see how important this issue is? Both in terms of our relationship to Yeshua and in terms of our relationship to one another. So let's look at the whole, this whole paragraph from Ephesians and get the full context. So Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For all members of one body, that's the key, we're all members of one body. In your anger, don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with all malice. And here's our verse. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Messiah, God forgave you. Now, one of the biggest problems with understanding and practicing forgiveness is that we don't define it biblically. So on the overhead, 
Forgiveness is more than just a statement, I forgive you. And it's more than just a lack of hostility. Biblically, forgiveness means canceling a debt. Uh, a classic example is you have something of mine you've borrowed. Uh, let's say my iPhone. Uh, and then you lose it or, or you, you drop it in the river or you accidentally destroy it. Forgiveness is not me saying, I forgive you, meaning I'm not going to do bad things to you like I really want to. <laughs> Just buy me a new iPhone and we're okay. But forgiveness means you don't have to buy me another iPhone. Because forgiveness means I cancel the debt that you owe me. And this is huge. This is one of the biggest issues and problems and struggles in our walk with Messiah. Because we think forgiveness means I'm not going to give you the full vent of my anger. Uh, I've forgiven you because, you know, I didn't hit you, I didn't slap you, I didn't curse you out. I've forgiven you, right? <laughs> but you're going to pay. <laughs> that is not forgiveness. Forgiveness means the debt is canceled. Now, how do we translate that into our own interpersonal relationships? How do I cancel a debt when there's no money involved, when there's no property involved, per se? And here's where the rubber meets the road on the overhead. One way we punish one another, one way we express unforgiveness towards one another is by withholding three things, by withholding attention, affection, and honor. That's the price we make one another pay. That's how we punish. So, so on the overhead. Uh, the first way we express unforgiveness is by withholding attention. I'm angry at you. I don't want to see you anymore. Get out of my sight. I'm punishing you and making you pay by withholding my attention from you. Or instead of withholding attention, maybe I'm withholding affection. So on the overhead. The, the second thing, the way we express unforgiveness is to withhold our affection. Uh, yeah, you could have my attention, sure. Uh, but there'll be no warmth for me, uh, no affection for me. Uh, you'll know this by the stone-cold, hard look on my face. You'll know by the coldness with which I deal with you that I'm withholding my affection from you. Uh, yeah, I forgive you, I say, but there's no affection because I'm making you pay. Uh, but that's not true biblical forgiveness. Uh, the overhead, or thirdly, I withhold honor. Let's say my parents were, the, were not the greatest parents. Uh, my father was, was not a great father. My mother wasn't a great mother. So I'm going to withhold honor from them. Uh, I'm not going to call them on their birthday. I, I'm going to withhold that uh, because they don't deserve it. And that's the way I'm going to punish them. These are ways in, in, in interpersonal relationships that we, that we make one another pay. So if we define forgiveness wrongly, here's what we end up doing. Because true forgiveness means I'm not going to withhold my attention or affection or honor from you. Uh, because we don't know or admit what forgiveness means. Something happens and we quickly say, we're very quick to say, oh, I forgive you. Meaning, I'm not going to throw scald scalding hot water on you. <laughs> I'm not going to key your car. But I am going to withhold my attention and my affection and my honor. Which means, I say you're forgiven but you're not. This is why, for example, something happens at shul and you get upset. Uh, you decide, well, I'm just not going to show up. Why? Because by not showing up, that's a means of me withholding my attention and affection and honor. 
This is my way of letting whoever I'm upset with at shul know that I'm upset, uh, and you must pay. This is what unforgiveness looks like in interpersonal relationships. This is what destroys families. This is what destroys friendships. This is what destroys marriages. This is what destroys congregations. Withholding attention and affection and honor. And of course, there are lots of sophisticated ways we do this. You can do this in a number of different ways, uh, even very petty ways. Uh, for example, you can root for one sports team because someone you're mad at likes the other team. <laughs> Who do you want for the Super Bowl this year? Well, definitely not L.A. because my mom's from L.A. and you know that I'm mad at her. <laughs> That's how ridiculous it gets. Now, some of you are sitting here already upset with me for talking about this topic. <laughs> because much of your emotional life is rooted in your unforgiveness that you hold against someone. Your life, in large, is, is, is defined by the bitterness you hold against someone because of what happened to you in the past. And you're mad at me right now because you know that in your heart of hearts that if you were ever to really forgive, and let go of that bitterness, you'd have to find another way to define yourself. You can be mean and nasty to people. You could have a critical, judgmental spirit. But if you think it's okay, but you think it's okay because you've had this trauma in your childhood uh, or something later in life. You're, you're stuck in this rut. Uh, you can't move. You won't move. But you say to yourself, "Well, it's okay because I had this bad experience in my past." And if that's you today, ask yourself this question. Why am I offended when this issue is discussed? You may be saying, you know, I've had these conversations before. People don't understand my pain. Uh, they're always telling me, oh, get over it. Now, please know forgiveness and getting over it are two very different things. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say forgive and forget? Where does it say that in the Bible? Maybe in second hesitations. <laughs> but it's not in the real Bible. It's only in the made-up Bible. Because human beings were not made to forget. You know, there's names for what happens to you when you start forgetting things. Names like amnesia, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, senility. <laughs> and think about this. Forgetting takes the glory out of forgiving. Forgetting is not where the power is. The spiritual power isn't when someone who's wronged you comes into your presence and you have no memory of what they did to you. <laughs> no. Uh, on the overhead. The power of forgiveness is when there is a very real memory and a very real visceral experience, and yet in the midst of it, by the power of God, by the grace of God, you relinquish any right you might think you have to punish them. And your animosity and your resentment and your bitterness is gone. That's the power of biblical forgiveness. And so with this background, let's turn to our text, Ephesians 4, 23. Be kind and compassionate, also means to be tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Messiah, God forgave you. First, notice this text within the context here is about forgiveness within the parameters of the body of believers. This particular text is not talking about forgiving people outside of the body of Messiah. Now, there are plenty of texts, 
yes, plenty of texts about forgiving anyone uh, who's wronged you or offended you, whether or not they're a believer. Uh, let's see the Lord's Prayer, for example, right? Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, we're to forgive everyone, whether they're a believer or not. Other translations say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. Mark 11, verse 25, Yeshua says, and when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Yeshua says, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. No exceptions. But this universal command to forgive is not the particular focus of our text here in Ephesians 4. So the context here is this. Forgiveness among the family of God is the context here. Indeed, the whole paragraph is about that. Paul's writing to fellow believers, and he says this in Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, each of you must put away falsehood and speak the truth to your neighbors. Why? For we are members of one body. What body? The body of Messiah. He says, speak the truth to your neighbor, which he then defines as fellow members of the body. So the whole context here is relationships and attitudes and actions among believers. And by extension, this applies to the marriage relationship and to your family as well. Ephesians 4, next verse, Ephesians 4, 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing honest work with their own hands so they have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. The context here is, is, is uh, behavior among believers, behavior in the congregation. And the key to this understanding is verse 30. Look at Ephesians 4.30. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. This is one of the many places where Scripture interprets Scripture. Do you want to know what, what grieving the Holy Spirit means? He tells you right here. At least here's one example of it. Unwholesome talk. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice, unforgiveness. That's the context uh, on the overhead. By the way, this phrase unwholesome talk in the Greek, it literally means acidic words, words that corrode, uh, words that tear down. Uh, don't let these kind of words come out of your mouth, uh, but only words that are helpful for building others up according to their needs, words that will benefit and give grace to those who hear. Think about your own speech. How well do you measure up to this standard? Does it build others up, or does your speech tear them down? Now, in terms of the context here, has there been a reference to, to building before this in Ephesians? Yes. Uh, a reference to building that actually having to do with the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, verse 19. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens to your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God 
by the Spirit. So in chapter 4, we have language that says, don't use words that corrode, like acid, and, and tear down, because that grieves the Holy Spirit. But rather, your speech should be used to help build others up. And then in Ephesians 2, we see the Holy Spirit building a structure, a structure of the body of believers. So again, this, uh, these parallels further reiterate uh, that when Paul says to, says to forgive one another in chapter 4, he's speaking specifically about the context of believers, how we should treat one another. So how do we grieve the Holy Spirit when we use corrosive words? Uh, by tearing down what the Spirit is building. What is he building? The body of believers. Those who belong to Yeshua and belong to one another. So this forgiveness that we're looking for in verse 32 is forgiveness within the context of the body of believers. It's within the context of our relationship to one another. Belonging to one another as fellow citizens in God's kingdom. Again, we're not negating the command to also forgive those outside the body of Messiah, but Paul's exhortation here is specifically to fellow believers. So on the overhead, Paul also says this in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. So forgiveness happens in the context of this kindness and tenderheartedness that we're to have towards one another within the body. Indeed, Paul says we belong to one another. Look again at Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. We belong to each other. We're, we're members of each other. Therefore, don't tar- tear one another down. We're being built together in unity as a dwelling place for God. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. In this regard, look over at Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. That's what we're to put on, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together in perfect harmony everything. And that the peace of Messiah rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Same, thing, same themes we see over in Ephesians 4. Uh, on the overhead, this forgiveness is being commanded. It's not just being, and it's not just being commanded out of nowhere. Rather, this forgiveness is being commanded as part of an environment that's being cultivated when we understand that we actually belong to one another. We're part of the same body. And then this makes forgiveness even more important and more necessary because love requires more forgiveness, not less. Anyone married for more than a few years knows this. <laughs> it's sometimes you know, glibly said, you know, true love doesn't require forgiveness. Actually, the exact opposite is true <laughs> because let's be honest, spouses, we continue to periodically sin against one another, don't we? Because we still have a fallen nature even if we're redeemed in Messiah. Our new man continues to war against our old man. As Paul points out in Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Titus and Romans, uh, throughout the whole Brit Hadashah. Uh, so a spouse sometimes will say, well, if you really loved me, you wouldn't keep sinning against me. It's not that simple. Let's say, for example, that you perceive my sin once out of every three interactions we have together. Now, if we only interact with each other three times a month, 
then you only perceive my sin against you once a month, right? Simple math. But what if we interact three times a day? My rate of sin hasn't changed. Your rate of, perceive, your rate of perceiving my sin hasn't changed. What has happened is we spend more time together. And if you're married, who do you spend the most time with? Your spouse. It's like people who say, you know, there are more floods now than ever before. Uh, because we hear about floods all the time on the news. And so some people say, this is the end. This is the end times. Did you hear there's another flood just last week, another flood somewhere over in Asia? The whole village flooded. Hundreds of people died. But statistically, there are not significantly more floods now than there have been in the past. That's just not true. It's, uh, it's not statistically true, but we, we hear about it a lot more. You know, that we hear about it particularly from the people who are into global warming and climate change because they want you to think that floods are on the increase. But they're really not. But do you know what there are more of right now? Cameras, videos, cell phones, reporters, social media, 24-7 news channels. A hundred years ago, if there was a flood in a small village in Pakistan or Indonesia or Malaysia, you would never hear about it. You'd live your entire life and never hear about it. But today, if there's a flood in some remote village where you can't even find it on a map, it's in the news and you see it. It's not that it's happening more frequently, you're just informed of it more frequently. So what's happening is when we're in a relationship with one another, it's not that the sin is becoming more frequent, but our proximity and our frequency of interaction makes us more aware of it. And so the closer the relationship, the more important and the more necessary forgiveness is. Because we all sin and we all miss the mark and we all fall short of God's glory. And because spouses interact more regularly and frequently than, than any other relationship, and so they're more aware of each other's sins, Forgiveness is most important of all within the context of a marriage relationship. And that's also why it's important to really get to know, by the way, to get to know someone really well, interact with them more than three times a month if you're thinking of getting married to them someday. So you can see their sin patterns ahead of time and you can discuss it with, that with one another. And so also with fellow believers with whom you share life together and you're having more than three interactions per month with, forgiveness Ongoing, regular forgiveness and mercy and grace and kindness and tenderheartedness is essential. And there's no better time to extend it than today on Yom Kippur. If you have ought against anyone today, or if you know anyone has ought against you, today is the day to make it right. Now, the way we normally think about the people we're close to, especially our family members, you know, our spouse, our children, our parents, where we, we regularly see each other's sin, is that the responsibility is 100% on the other person. They simply need to stop offending me, you know, stop wronging me, stop displeasing me or upsetting me or frustrating me. But you also have an obligation and a responsibility to forgive more. In, in, in intimate relationships, we're not to have this attitude, if this relation, relationship is ever going to work, you have to sin less. No, our attitude should be, I have to forgive more and extend more mercy and more grace. Notice what the text says again, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as in Messiah, God forgave you. The text does not say, we require the other person to sin less. No. 
on the overhead. The point is this. Greater intimacy requires greater forgiveness. And it's tragic that some people only learn this in their second or third marriage. So even if you feel your spouse is falling short, it's your scriptural responsibility to forgive. Just as in Yeshua, God forgave you. And the same principle applies to congregational life. Greater intimacy means you're going to see each other's flaws more often. And so greater forgiveness and mercy and grace is needed. And it's tragic that some people only learn this in their fourth or fifth congregation. So every time a personal relational conflict comes up, they simply change congregations. And they hop from, from one to the next. But the answer is not to move from one congregation to another. The biblical answer is to forgive and to learn how to reconcile uh, and restore relationships just as Yeshua forgave you. But all too often, instead of confessing, I have a forgiveness problem. I have a critical, judgmental spirit. We instead say, the congregation has a problem. The congregation has this flaw, uh, and this person that I don't like, and I don't get along with, so, so, so I'm done with this congregation. Or maybe I'm done with all congregations, because they all fall short. Ephesians 4.32 be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as in Messiah, God forgave you. Now, there are two sides to this. Forgiveness because we're forgiven. We're able to forgive because we are first forgiven. The first thing is this, you are forgiven. And this is crucial because it kills the hypocrisy. Because the, the hypocrisy is this. Everybody out there has a sin problem. Everybody out there is getting on my nerves. Uh, and I'm tired of always having to deal with them uh, and deal with their issues. Uh, I'm, I'm tired of it. But when you see your own sin and the darkness of your own heart, uh, when you see it from God's perspective and understand the Lord has forgiven you through the Yom Kippur atonement of Yeshua the Messiah, based not on any goodness in you, but on God's sheer mercy and grace, it radically changes your whole perspective because you begin to see your own sin and the log in your own eye so you can stop worrying about and gossiping about the splinter in your brother or sister's eye. So you need to start by seeing your own sin, just like Paul did. You know, Paul called himself the chief of all sinners. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. You sin, you need forgiveness. You have your own blind spots where you're oblivious to your sin, which enables you to be arrogant and prideful and judgmental towards others. Now, this person keeps going from relationship to relationship and congregation to congregation because everybody's always bombarding them with their sins. The irony is that this person doesn't see that their greatest sin is unforgiveness. And the problem isn't there are so many sinners out there. The problem is they have so little forgiveness in here, in their own hearts, on the overhead. The cure for this is the cross. Recognize Yeshua did not shed less blood for you. When you get exasperated uh, and, put, and, put out, uh, and you get all put out over the sins of others, with their failures and their offenses and their weaknesses, which you're very quick to point out, by the way, and you're very quick to spot, when their transgression and character flaws and pattern, uh, and pet, their pettiness and their lack of the fruit of the Spirit, when it comes to your mind, remember and recognize 
Yeshua did not have to shed any less blood for you and your sins. You are equally a sinner, whether you see it or not, whether you admit it or not, whether you're in self-deception or not. Jeremiah 17, 9, because the heart is deceptive above all things and beyond cure. Who can know it? And also remember Matthew 7, verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And of the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. So I want to encourage you on this most holiest of holy days, Yom Kippur, when understanding you, when, when understanding you need to see to, uh, uh, to forgive others, you need to revisit the cross again uh, and look at Yeshua's face and be confronted with the magnitude of your own sin that needs forgiving as well. Ask Yeshua, show me my own sin that was nailed to that tree and the blood that was shed to purchase my forgiveness so that I can see how much I need to forgive others. And there's, there's a flip side of it as well. We're able, to forgive, we're able to forgive now because we're forgiven. This is the view from the cross. And this changes the whole way in which I view my sin and changes the way that I view yours. Unforgiveness is truly sinister. It does not come from a heart filled with Messiah's love. On the overhead, unforgiveness does a number of things. Number one, unforgiveness is costly. Uh, emotionally, it's costly. It costs me a lot emotionally to constantly be, be punishing you in my mind. You know, I've got to constantly replay these tapes in my mind of what you did and, and how much you owe. On the overhead, I've got to continually think about how much attention and affection and honor I've got to withhold from you until I feel like I've made you pay enough uh, for your sin. Which, by the way, often is never. In my mind, you've never paid enough. And the grudge and the resentment goes on and on forever, feeding upon itself, slowly devouring your soul. You see, spiritually, your unforgiveness damages you far more than the person that you won't forgive. It's costly. It's draining emotionally and spiritually. And therefore results in a complete severing of the relationship. It's also costly because you're on this hamster wheel you can never get off of. James 1, verse 20. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So if you won't truly forgive from your heart, your attitude is, I'm going to withhold attention and respect and honor from you because I want to inflict upon you as much emotional pain as I possibly can so the next time you won't do it again. But subconsciously, you're saying, I don't believe that Yeshua sanctifies I believe my anger does. I'm not really interested in you becoming more like Yeshua. I'm more interested in you being afraid to experience my wrath so that you don't act that way again on the overhead. But the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And your unforgiveness is costly, not only to them, but even more so to you. So number two, it's costly uh, to, to you. Uh, it's costly in terms of your lost relationship with the one that you're at odds with but even more costly in terms of your relationship with the Lord. Indeed, people who are unforgiving towards, towards others, in the long run, they, even, they question their own salvation. Why? Because they think God's forgiveness is the same as theirs, the same way they think about forgiveness. And if you're an exacting and unforgiving person, 
you ultimately believe that's exactly who God is on the overhead. If you withhold attention and affection and honor from people who sin against you, then when you see sin in your own heart, you automatically assume the Lord's going to withhold his attention and affection and honor from you. So this is another way in which your unforgiveness is actually costing you more than anyone. Very costly. Uh, on the overhead, thirdly, it also messes up your theology. Because what you end up saying, in essence, is that with respect to this person, this person's sin against you, you're saying the blood of Yeshua, yeah, it's enough to, to cover their sin, of course, and to satisfy the demands of the Lord's righteousness, but I require more. The blood of Yeshua is not enough to buy my forgiveness. The Lord God Almighty can forgive you your sins, yes, against me due to his death and resurrection of Messiah, but I have higher standards. I have higher standards than the Lord God himself. He requires the death of his son. That's fine for him. I require more. I require you to grovel and to beg for forgiveness and for you to face my wrath and to feel alienated from me because Yeshua dying on the cross as our Yom Kippur atonement isn't enough for me. It may be enough for God, but it's not enough for me. That's what you're in essence saying every time you refuse to forgive. Do you see how unforgiveness totally messes up your theology and your view of who God is? And fourth and finally on the overhead, unforgiveness will kill your compassion. In contrast, exercising forgiveness cultivates compassion. I recognize Yeshua has forgiven me my sins, and now you've sinned against me. And so I recognize that you need forgiveness, the same forgiveness I've experienced. I become compassionate toward forgiving your sin because I know what it looks like and feels like to wrestle with similar sins. You know, so now, instead of becoming bitter toward you, I'm driven to my knees and driven to the cross on your behalf to pray for you. So on this most holy of holy days of Yom Kippur, I want to exhort you and admonish you to forgive anyone you are at odds with. Anyone you think has wronged you or offended you or sinned against you. And if you know someone uh, is offended at you uh, or at odds with you, I urge you to go to them today, humbly, and to seek their forgiveness, ask for their forgiveness. Matthew 5, 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and then you remember your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. You've been forgiven in Messiah, in the Yeshua, and so you must forgive. By God's grace, you can forgive. The forgiveness that Yeshua purchased for you on the cross has transformed you. And now you have the ability to forgive. Uh, and, and, uh, and God willing to attempt even to reconcile uh, and to restore broken relationships if that's possible. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off had now been brought near by the blood of Messiah. For he himself is our shalom, our peace, was made the two one, and has destroyed in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, occasioned by the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing shalom. And might reconcile us both to God through the cross, that what he put to death 
their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile alike, have access to the Father by one spirit. On the overhead, this is what the cross has done. The cross has made peace between me and God. And in turn has made peace between me and you. I'm forgiven, therefore I can forgive. I can be reconciled to you because I've been reconciled to God through the cross. My sins have been forgiven through my repenting and my trusting in Yeshua. I've been granted a new nature. I've been made at peace with God and with you. And your sins, including the sins you commit against me, are now under the blood of Messiah. So what do I have left to hold on to? I no longer have any excuse for holding on to a grudge uh, or bitterness or resentment or unforgiveness. Now to anticipate your objections, let me close with an important caveat. <laughs> there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Reconciliation is a two-way street. Forgiveness is a one-way highway. Forgiveness is unilateral. They don't need to first ask you for forgiveness. Mark eleven twenty-five. when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. So your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Notice this verse. It's an unconditional command. They do not have to first ask for forgiveness. Yeshua makes it clear we must forgive if we ourselves want forgiveness. And he says this applies if you hold anything against anyone. You can even forgive a dead person, by the way. Some of you here today may need to. Because you're still harboring unforgiveness against someone who's not even alive anymore. It's clearly not hurting them anymore. <laughs> They're dead. It's only destroying you. So forgive. Let it go. Release your hatred and stubbornness and your pride and your ego. But that's not the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation requires the other person's cooperation. You can't make someone reconcile. And sometimes the relationship is so toxic that it's not wise to seek reconciliation. However, forgiveness means I give up my right to punish you. So on this Yom Kippur, forgive. Children, forgive your parents. Parents, forgive your children. Husbands, forgive your wives. Wives, forgive your husbands. Do not withhold attention, affection, or honor from one another. Forgive even as Messiah Yeshua has forgiven you. As someone, uh, maybe some, uh, some fellow EC member or an EC leader uh, has sinned against you, forgive, not just outwardly, but from your heart, and pray to the Lord for reconciliation. Do not withhold attention, affection, honor, and make them pay. Because that's not true forgiveness. Don't let, don't let that mere lip service of saying, oh, I forgive you, characterize how you relate to your marriage or your family or your congregation. But truly forgive from the heart. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other in God as God and Messiah has forgiven you. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come on up. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, on this Yom Kippur. Thank you for your forgiveness through the blood of Yeshua. 
And we forgive all others who have offended or wronged or sinned against us or hurt us. Indeed, you tell us that if we won't forgive others their sins, neither will you forgive us our sins. Why? Because our lack of forgiveness for others reveals our hard heart that ultimately is hard towards you, Lord. Do you tell us unforgiveness grieves the Holy Spirit? So, Lord, help us this day to obey your word, which commands us to be kind and compassionate, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving each other as you and Messiah have forgiven us. Lord, on this day of atonement, we hereby release and cancel any debt we feel others owe us due to their sin against us. We let it go. And therefore, we're no longer going to withhold attention and affection and honor from them. Whether it's my spouse, my child, my parent, my sibling, my friend, my classmate, my coworker, my neighbor, my fellow congregation member, I vow to seek their forgiveness if I've wronged or offended them, or if they think I've wronged or offended them. And I hereby forgive them uh, if they've wronged or offended me, or I think they have. And I hereby, I hereby release any animosity or resentment or bitterness against them. And instead, I will be kind and compassionate, tender-hearted to them, just as you, Yeshua, my Yom Kippur sin and guilt offering forgave me and had mercy and grace toward me. And I pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.